0: You're listening to Plenary Session. We're live from Plenary Session Classroom, and this week we have a special guest, Blood Man, Tom DeLore. He's the head of hematology here, and he has many fascinating stories from the world of hematology. And we'll be back next week in Plenary Session Studios for a proper plenary session. So stay tuned for Dr. DeLore. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon, we could use your support. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Tom Delory. Dr. Delory is known to many of you online as the Blood Man. He's Blood Man on Twitter, and he is our Chief of the Hematology Service here at OHSU. Let me tell them a little bit about you, Dr. Delory. Um, you did your medical school at Indiana University, and you are a Hoosier. Yes. Like myself, uh, we both did our high school in mm-hmm. Indiana. Um, you did your residency at Oregon Health and Science University. You were wrongfully passed over. Uh, and you were not chief resident. That is true. I'm, I've been scarred for life from that horrible event. I see. And um, and and somehow you managed to pull together a career, and, That's right. and you did your fellowship here in hematology oncology. You've worked here quite uh, a long time. Is it? Um is it forty-two or forty-three years? Now? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was shortly after the Oregon Trail ended. Oh, I, I moved here. I see. Um, and so you were one of the survivors of the trail. That's right. Uh, you made it here. But I you... treated everybody for iron deficiency. <laughs> and you worked here. Um, you've worked here at OHSU for uh, over twenty years. Yes,
1: it's a long time. Um, uh, I got here as a resident in eighty-six. I did my internship at UC Irvine. I so see. if I'd be listening from there, I don't want to diss them. And then uh, I've been on the faculty since ninety-one.
0: Since 1991. Yes. And um, you have been a, uh, a hematologist all this time. Correct you don't prefer the term benign hematologist because many hematologic conditions have high rates of morbidity and mortality is that fair to say
1: that is fair you know i think um you know certainly opposed to malignant hematology but i would say that certainly when i first started out i had 230 year old patients die of pnh that's not benign that's not benign certainly sickle cell disease is not benign uh, severe antiphospholipid is not benign so so i've always objected to that term
0: yeah and i i do think it kind of um <laughs> Uh, it, it, it understates the, the seriousness of many hematologic conditions. Um, one thing about hematology is it goes hand in hand, I think, with general internal medicine. Would you, would you say that that's fair to say?
1: I think that's very fair to say. I think there is a lot of overlap. Certainly, conditions do intersect. And probably more than my malignant colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, there is overlap
0: I wanna talk about many things with you. I think the listeners are gonna enjoy this, but I wanted to talk, and I didn't wanna prep you too much because I I like to hear you off the cuff. Um, But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, you know, I have been, some listeners may know this, and I don't know if I ever told you this, I've been doing this informal survey where I go around and I ask people, um, what percent of your time at work uh, do you spend doing things you enjoy and love to do and what percent of the time do you spend doing things um, you have to do that are kind of the obligatory parts of the job? And I've never, I never—I don't think I've ever asked you to quantify that for me, but I've studied you because listeners will know I, I sit across the hall from you so I, I'm able to observe you in your element, a sort of field experiment. Um, and I have concluded that you, of, of, of almost everyone I've met, you're very high on your doing things day in and day out that you want to do. You're very happy, you have high job satisfaction, you enjoy what you do. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say.
1: I, uh, I'm i I'm probably one of the few people lucky enough that I love to come to work and I love, for the most part, what I do. So I would say that, yes, I love hematology. I love reading about hematology. I love learning about hematology. I love diagnosing hematologic disease. So yes, I love what I do.
0: You love what you do. And, and you do, um, I want to give listeners a little bit more background about your clinic. Um, you have a couple of busy half-day clinics, which like everyone's half-day spillover, um, you also attend on the hematology consult service. Uh, do you do anything else? But you attend a fair bit. I mean, you yes. attend, you know, yeah. you're, you're doing months and months of attending. Yeah. Over the course so of your- I, I tend to, I tend to attend a
1: lot. If that's a sentence, mm-hmm. um, I have three robust clinics, uh, also, when I'm on, I take transfusion call. That's very enjoyable and interacting with the transfusion service. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's delightful. And I do a lot of e-consults for uh, the
0: hematology service. Ah, the e-consults. Mm-hmm. And you are um, sort of um, part of the institution of OHSU. You do a, a fair bit of service on the committees of OHSU. Uh, are you, You're on the... Um, uh, pharmacy and therapeutics committee. Yep.
1: So I'm on the pharmacy and therapeutics committee. We have our own subcommittee which we cutely call the Cat Committee of Coagulation, Anticoagulation, Transfusion. And then uh, I've been on the IRB since time out of mind.
0: I see. So you you so you do a fair bit. And I guess I I want to kind of give listeners a little sense of, you know, why I think you have high job satisfaction. Um, w- maybe you would agree with me. There a lot of people in Academic medicine, there's a phenotype out there. It's not everybody, but it's a phenotype of like the chronically dissatisfied person. And perhaps that's part of what makes some people, you know, incredibly um you know, driven to do whatever they're doing. Um, and it is refreshing to see somebody who,, um, you know, I think you exude a joy uh, when when you're dealing with your work. Um, And I think that's part of the reason why the trainees uh, enjoy working with you. Because you you teach the medical student course, do you not?
1: Yes. So uh, for 10 years, I ran the medical student course. And in the revised course, I'm no longer uh – Running it, which is good because I don't have to deal with student complaints, but (laughs) uh, I still abundantly lecture uh, the course there. I lecture the residents, actually, lecture at the two other residency programs in town. So I feel I'm an evangelical hematologist, spreading the word, spreading uh, the gospel, spreading the
0: gospel of red cells. And uh, you've been successful because among the fellow (laughs) graduates here, there's been a disproportionate amount uh, that have gone into. Uh, hematology, is that fair to say?
1: Well, I think it's also because we tend to pick smarter people oh. who tend to gravitate <laughs> towards Right, us. they know what's good. That's right.
0: Dr. DeLore, um what did I, I wanted to ask you. Um, when you were a student at IU, when, was that when you knew you were going to do hematology or when did you decide to do it?
1: It was an evolution. Um, You know, I think one of the things that's lost with the newer systems of med school is that, uh, you know, we had traditional summer breaks. And Mm. I was lucky enough, my summer break, to work with a fascinating man named Frederick J. Walker, who Mm. was the man who discovered what protein S did Mm. in his little lab in Terre Haute, Indiana, at Indiana State University, because we had regional campuses. And I spent a, uh, a summer basically playing with cow blood, isolating proteins, and that got me interested so I, I always knew I wanted to be an internist, but I think more and more as I progressed in my uh, training, especially in my internship and residency, I really became to like hematology and hematologic problems more. When I came to Oregon, there was a wonderful uh, hematologist named Scott Goodnight, who was my mentor, mm-hmm. was a very good clinician, uh, very, you know, uh, a very stellar teacher, also had a big influence on me. But I think I've, I enjoyed many fields in medicines and had many offers of fellowships, but it was really hematology kept pulling me back. I was fascinated with coagulation. I really enjoyed red cell problems. And so I think it was more of a gradual onset. I'll occasionally tell people that several times I was in med school. I drove across the country and one time in Nevada, I saw a 500-foot red cell speaking to me. That's the more dramatic version. Was this said Burning Man? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: Uh, we won't go into that. Oh, but, I see. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it, it from that initial exposure with Dr. Walker's lab, things just coming to reinforce that I really enjoyed hemostasis. I really enjoyed hematology and that became my
0: passion. And when you were starting out here on faculty, Dr. Uh, Dr. Goodnight was the, was he the section chief of hematology? So he, was, he had a fascinating point, post he was actually
1: more in pathology at that time he was uh helping with clinical pathology ran the coag lab but still was very active clinically he had a clinic one day a week and we worked together a lot so Mm -hmm. uh,
0: i want to talk to you about um i guess maybe I'll, i'll jump to some of the things that i had thought about sure hypercoagulable workups yes we don't send enough of those, do we, Doctor? <laughs> you know, we
1: need to do them on everybody. I, I think. think. Well, we're actually doing that with twenty three and Me. Thank God I'm Factor Five Light and po- negative. But... Oh,
0: I see. What you're, because of direct to consumer twenty three and Me, people get their Factor Five light. Yeah, instead. so
1: that's actually an interesting lemma. People learn their Factor Five and prothrombin gene mutation status. And what, uh, of what import is that? Well, it would seem to be none for random screening. Right. Um, it's interesting if you look at the data. The biggest predictor is still having Factor Five. And a family history. And so I think we have no idea, but probably the risk is pretty low of any additional risk if you just randomly find that people have factor V Leiden. And that's an old story. It's very interesting that protein C deficiency, uh, a guy named Phil Comp did a study in St. Louis where one in 200 blood donors actually had low protein C and never thrombotic. So I think... You know, with hypercoagulable states, we've always, as I said, look from the other end of the telescope. I have ten hypercoagulable patients in clinic by history. Oh, they have factor V Leiden. That's probably a risk factor. But I think when you start <clears throat> randomly picking people, like with Twenty Three and Me, I think there's a. Uh, another boston heart screen that does this genetic screening uh-huh. it's hard to know what to do because i think people think it's harmless but then you're like well yeah, factor five light hey guess what you can't use estrogen anymore you know what I, you're pregnant well we'll have to think about anticoagulant because we because our tools and how we respond to it's based on people that we check for family history it comes from a big kindred so so i think that that that's a big problem and certainly, I think, our use of getting hypercoagulable states. A lot of it's a shift in our thinking. When I when I was a young man, we only had two hypercoag You know, we just <laughs> right. had protein C, protein S, and anithrombin. You know, we found it very rare. We'd high-five each other. Huh. And then when factor V prothrombin gene mutation came along, we went through this change. We thought, oh, that mandated anticoagulation forever. Oh, that's a big risk. But they were common enough we could do these beautiful studies to show that they didn't add to the risk. You know, if you had an idiopathic DVT, the history's bad enough. It was a provoked DVT. It didn't add to the risk. So it's really our change, our thinking has changed. And I think it led a lot of us to question why even get it. You know, if you break your femur and get provoked thrombosis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you knowing your factor five negative negative or positive doesn't matter. And, you know, if you're walking down the street, uh, going to a concert and get a DVT, well, that's idiopathic. You know, maybe knowing a hypercoagulable state doesn't matter.
0: Either, because you need to lifelong etiquette. You quagulant- need to do yeah. lifelong. Uh-huh. So I think
1: for especially the inherited mm-hmm. ones, it may not make that much a difference. Interestingly, there's been an increasing argument that maybe we should, at least for uh, idiopathic ones, think about doing antiphospholipids because using doax the new drugs, but that's it maybe an issue there but that's a nuance. And of course, you know, we waste billions of dollars doing hypercoagulable state workups for arterial disease where there's never been shown to be useful. Right. You know, I'm always seeing like oh, Grandpa Perkins, he smokes, he has a cholesterol 5000 and he had a TIA. Yeah, TIA <laughs> at age yeah. 80 and yeah. oh yeah, he's factor 5 Leiden. And I've right. actually seen that ro- roll through the family. I, I saw a young woman who was pregnant at the age of 16 had factor 5 Leiden. Because her grandfather had an arterial stroke, was found to have Factor V light, and she mm-hmm. couldn't get birth control. I, I think people don't realize the ramifications that roll through the family. I It's it d-
0: stigmatizing for her. I mean, it right. affects her choice in a negative way. I right. guess, you know, you showed me this table, I think, a while back, which is, it was, it was sort of a table of um, the odds ratio or the relative risk of increased thrombosis with each of these hypercoagulable yes. states adjusted for th- personal history of having had a clot. Yes and and the personal history of having had a clot matters a great deal it is and and what that kind of made me think about more was that, you know, in so many situations in medicine, broadly, we uh, kind of hang our hat on the genetic right. mutation, but there might be more to it than that, you know, it may not just be that mutation, but the context of other mutations in which it arises, and there's something else about the, and, and knowing the phenotype is probably very important.
1: I think it is, so like I said, I, I, I joke with the medical students who follow me in clinic, like, well, this is where the, you know, the only part in medicine where actually taking a history matters, because, you know, really to predict mm. your risk of thrombosis, it's the history, especially your personal history, the family history. History. And it's interesting. I was at a meeting today. We're starting to dip our toes into doing genetic, basically, next-generation screening for platelets and bleeding disorders. Yeah. And we're finding all these mutations we sort of don't know what to do with. Right. It's like, well, that's bad it's heterozygous. I mean, homozygous, but it's heterozygous, but maybe it's mixing with this. So I, I think that's right. I think we get the genetics first, and then we gotta, we're in this step feel, figuring out it, how to deal with it later.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit. I know that we, you know, you have a uh, focused gene panel of Mm -hmm. something like 80, 90 gene mutations that are thought to be related to disorders of uh, platelet or primary hemostasis. who are the people in whom you think about this this panel, and and you know when do you send it off? That's a good question. Um, I've been thinking about mainly two people. The people we
1: tend to focus on, and where at least in the literature the hit rate rate is highest, has been for platelet disorders. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have a prolonged platelet function assay, maybe degree of thrombocytopenia. some people have gotten a hit rate up to 50% of finding uh, a mutation. For bleeding NOS, it's probably lower. We do screen for unusual things like Factor V Texas, which is a mutant Factor V, and Uh some other rare things I've yet to hit. And there it seems to be lower. Uh, But I think this, again, is something we we are exploring. Uh, One of my colleagues, Christina Haley, is actually doing a wonderful study of actually getting the gene panel, correlating it with a variety of platelet and other studies, very defined bleeding scores, just trying to see what it all means. So I think kind of what we, like we're doing with malignant heme and discovering, mm-hmm. you know, 10% of people have a mutation right. is, I think we're discovering a lot of things we need to step back and figure out what to do with.
0: Wow, just as clonal hematopoiesis is to the blood system, you're finding, you know, some sorts of mutations <laughs> in right. platelets. How do you separate, you have somebody in your office walks in and they say, you know, I bleed easy, I bruise easy. <sighs> What are the things in your mind that make you think? You know, I got to investigate this versus you know some people. Some people may just feel that that is the case, right. and that's not the case. So
1: yeah. there's two approaches. My, my approach has just been to ask a series of questions. Mm. So I, I chat with the patient about their bleeding history. What I look for is, as my mentor, Doctor Goodnight taught me, is mm. bleeding that's unusual, prolonged, or excessive. Mm. So, you know, I'll ask somebody. You know why do you bleed? I'm like, well, the surgeon once cut my order and I bled. I'm <laughs> right, like, oh yeah, my okay. like, god, let's get <laughs> the gene, pa- you know, let's yeah. get the gene panel. Um, <laughs> <That's good. laughs> but uh, you know, it's like I had, had my tooth pulled. I bled for three days. Curiously, little things like bruises that run. So if somebody gets hit with a baseball, but the bruise ran down their legs, so. Mine is still more of a gestalt. Yeah, they've had a lot of challenges. They bled. I think what's one thing interesting about bleeding once you do it enough is it's surprising. I'll, I'll, uh, I had a patient once who I picked up from my mentor who had factor nine deficiency. It was very low. It was picked up with excessive dental work, but he'd actually survived a POW camp, and so mm-hmm. he'd had. So it's interesting. People can have major challenges, and I don't know if it's the adrenaline or that do okay, and then bleed with trivial things. There mm. are very standard bleeding scores put out by the International Society, right, right. and th- those tend to be cumbersome in use. They're forty-five minutes, right. and you know, again, for research they're ideal. Uh-huh. But I think I still go on on the like Gestalt. Multiple episodes of bleeding, uh, you know, heavy periods, but in women uh, is another strong clue. So it's still still a little bit just just sitting down and taking a history.
0: I see, and and I think that's one of the re- things that I think um, you know people. Like about hematology is that the history still matters a great deal. Um, And, uh, you know, really in everything, even in DVT and things of that nature. Let's talk about our favorite uh, shared interest the IVC filter. It's wonderful. I'm getting one this afternoon. (laughs) uh, you, you you've been vocal um every year you put out a, a list on twitter of the your grievances for the year Yeah,
1: every my grievances like the old steinfeld yes
0: yeah the the for the festivus uh yes. the miracle you air your grievances rather than you rather than the things you're thankful for and one of the things that comes in on your list year after year is the ivc filter why does it bother you so much so i think it bothers me for several reasons i i do think it's overused uh
1: and again, I think good people can argue about what's an indication, what's not, but it's very clearly overused. Uh, I think when you wrote your paper, one in six Medicare patients with PE got it. Mm-hmm. I think we're down to one in 13, but that's still mm-hmm. a very high number. And I also think it's an intervention that somehow people think is benign, mm-hmm. but isn't like, oh, well, do, you know, you just want to be safe or we'll just slip in a filter just to be safe. Right. And, you know, there's, it's a procedure, it's radiation, there's issues with hemorrhaging, but. You know, the filter le- doubles risk of DVT. The damn thing can clot off. We're <laughs> discovering these temporary ones now break all over the place. Uh, I believe Dr. O'Glasser has a classic uh, case of a patient who coughed up his filter strut and oh, brought boy. it into the ER because yeah. it had embolized. Frac-
0: fracture, yeah. Right.
1: And so I think there's a lot of negative things with it. And I think sometimes a bit frustrating is when you when you see it done in situations where everybody and their brother says you don't need to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're pretty comfortable now that... You know, we have two trials, the last one with removable filters that if you can anticoagulate a patient, you know, putting a filter has no influence on mortality. And the last trial had no influence on P.E. rate. Right. You know, in the original trial, actually low molecular weight heparin was just as effective as a filter right. in preventing it. And so I, I think a lot of it is it just seems to be a necessary use risk to the patient that just has cleaned uh cling to the medical history I you know it's recommended strongly by the ACCP not to use before procedures and yet I see patients who end up with filters that stay in long term because oh they had a history of DVT in the you know Carter administration we better put in a filter right. and you know again everybody wants to be safe but you know the the trade off is the patient stuck with a filter or I've seen patients get you know bilateral DVTs from the IVC clotting off and mm-hmm. so I think I think that's the most frustrating thing is it's you know the true indications are very very limited but it's still incredible variation in use there were been math published where they're rarely used in Montana uh, in certain East Coast states it seems like if you scratch your chest you get an IVC hmm. filter play so I, I think also just a tremendous variation in use
0: which probably um, is born of the underlying ambiguity in the in the evidence base right um, and perhaps some perverse financial incentives even the removable filters that uh, you know we with best intentions yes. and we talk about removing many studies have suggested that the rate of removal is much uh, less than to be desired. Is that fair to say?
1: It's phenomenally low. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some people quote only 30% get removed. Uh, You know, I think fortunately certain places like our own have been proactive in following us and getting these removed. But that's a very common thing I'll see in clinic where somebody has a filter plopped in. And it's never removed. In fact, now there's a whole industry of removing filters. I think Stanford advertises on TV their filter removal services. We were blessed with a very strong interventional radiology who have removed filters that have been in over 10 years. But but it's in, interesting now. We've created this whole industry of removing filters mm-hmm. even long term for things that were only supposed to stay in and i think as you as you've pointed out you know these really don't get that much fda approval yeah. and removable filters were never tested or designed to stay in over a short period of time
0: yeah and um um, that the act of removing something that's been in there a long time, it's not a trivial thing. It can be, right. you know, it can kind of invade into the vessel walls.
1: Yeah, and I believe a lot of the procedures literally involve lasering and carving out the filter. And oh, wow. we had a horrible case about a year ago where a filter had actually disintegrated and struts migrated into the pancreas near the aorta oh. and actually involved our good friend Dr. Shepard, the pancreatic mm-hmm. surgeon. Uh, my good friend Dr. Lee, the vascular surgeon, a very complex procedure removed this because the patient was suffering from pancreatitis. so So there are amazingly bad outcomes that can happen.
0: Hmm. it's it's it, to me, it's something that's so interesting, which is, you know, and, and that we've I've talked about is that use the five ten k approval where you kind of get these daisy chains approvals based on predicate. You really have a a device that came to the market. Never at the outset had it had sort of the robust, randomized right. trials mm-hmm. showing improvement in PE or mortality. Um, there was the PREPIC study that came out many years later. Um, But I think it is, you know, clearly overused. um, And it's something that uh, it's been very difficult to get. um, We we keep seeing retrospective studies on it on the topic, too. And they go whatever direction it seems that the authors want it to go.
1: And it's interesting. So I think the most interesting one that came out recently was the one that controlled for the immortal time bias, Uh which is now one of my favorite biases, Of course, which you can probably explain better than me, but but. is the idea you have to be alive a certain amount of time to get a procedure. Correct. So Mm -hmm. if you have 50 people, DVTs, 25 got filters, 25 didn't. Well, you have to live long enough to get a filter. Correct. If you mm-hmm. died in the IR waiting room, you'd be in yes. the-
0: didn't get filter group.
1: Didn't get yes. filter group. And interestingly, when they controlled for that, there was suggestion of harm with filters. Right. Now, again, it's it's it, it's interesting because it's obviously you know raises all the issue of retrospective studies, but again, it's not a slam dunk. You know, that's our tradition, like, oh, if you are got a contraindication and a coagulation, that's That's the parachute indication for filters. Right. Where again, now we have several studies to suggest maybe not. And maybe it's actually worth one of these days doing an an honest to goodness real study on it.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with you. I think that... um It it, uh, these studies, you know, they may not be, as you put it, you know, a slam dunk. They may not be the final word on the subject, but there's certainly enough to say that this is no parachute. Right. I mean, it's not a parachute. It could be tested, and probably ought to be, uh, as that is the one place that all the four major guidelines uh, have consensus that that that's the indication Mm -hmm. for filter. Doctor Delory, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about. it's the rise and fall of catheter-directed uh, <laughs> uh, lytics uh, for uh, DBT. That's a
1: fascinating story. So um, again, here at OHSU, we, we've we been blessed with a very aggressive international radiology group. Uh, Fred Keller uh, founded it, or uh, uh, was one of the big leaders, uh, John Kaufman. And one of the things very early on, back when I was a young pup, was they were studying this idea of doing catheter-directed thrombolytic therapy. And I remember I had this young athlete she had a very large very painful thrombosis couldn't run anymore so we took her to cath lab you know they did thrombolytic therapy on her uh, iliac artery they put in a stent and she did great and about and i said you know well she just needs three months of anticoagulation Two years later, she recurs. I'm like, oh, it must be the damn stent. Of course, it was the other leg. But I think that got people interested in these obviously heroic stories. And there was very intriguing data, including a small trial from one of the Scandinavian countries that actually suggested – you know, a very aggressive approach to catheter-directed thrombolytic therapy for DVTs may prevent post-thrombotic syndrome. And that, you know, if you talk to any hematologist, that's the bane of our existence. You've got these patients, big, painful, swollen legs, and you're like, well, wear stockings. You can't do much. And so it was fascinating. There's a very large trial called the ATTRACT trial. We we're one of the institutions that participated that randomized people's proximal vein thrombosis to catheter-directed thrombolytic therapy versus not. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty rigorous study. you know, they came out and actually looked at our guys. you had to be very good at it
0: And oh, I see. so there's some um, quality control. there was actually in that. quality control
1: in mm-hmm. it. And what was amazing is that was an astoundingly negative trial. Mm-hmm. Um, very minor changes in points, like a little bit less leg swelling, but it really mattered instance of post thrombotic syndrome, quality of life. Zilch. Zilch absolutely no mm-hmm. difference and I had to admit I tend to be cynical, but even that was a bit of a surprise to me right right given some of the positive pre-existing data right there's big clots, little clots it didn't seem to make a difference right and, and I think that was very surprising I you know, and I think that hopefully has put this to rest. Uh, again, I think it's still if you have somebody with disabling symptoms, somebody with very huge DVT, arterial compromise is probably still indicated. Uh-huh. But I think this trend that had been, even even the chest supplement at one time gave a blessing of doing catheter directed therapy with everybody with a large proximal DVT, uh, I think this trial effectively killed that. And I think mm-hmm. to the credit of the authors, they came to you know this study and say, this was a negative study, we gotta rethink it. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing about it is that, well, what causes post-thrombotic syndrome? You know, our simple idea is the mm-hmm. vessel's plugged, you get chronic damage. Right. And here is like the vessel is unplugged, but you still get chronic damage. Is it inflammation, quality of anticoagulation? So like all good trials that opened up a host of issues. But I, I that was one of the tri- trials that kind of took me a bit by surprise. I I'd kind of thought maybe not super positive, but would have help but was, like I said, pretty, pretty, pretty well done
0: pretty well done and pretty negative trial hmm. and you had had prior to that um like many providers strong personal anecdotal impressions of people who felt a whole lot better yeah. i think both that again,
1: Some inner, and i think what's interesting about the study even some smaller studies a Cochrane review that said hey maybe mm-hmm. maybe this will help prevent post thrombotic syndrome so and i think that was the disappointing thing i hate post thrombotic syndrome so you
0: know it's a, I, I think post thrombotic syndrome is a very tough one yeah. um and uh, I wonder if you could take us through a little bit about the compression stocking literature in post-thrombotic syndrome.
1: Well, that's fascinating because it all seems to be contradictory. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> there was a large trial called the Sox Trial, mm-hmm. beautiful name. That randomized people to compression
0: stockings versus sham control,
1: which mm-hmm. were apparently just loose socks
0: uh, <laughs> It didn't have the 30 millimeter mercury right, right, uh, kind of compression, right. yeah,
1: and you know that was pretty negative. Mm-hmm. And people have argued, well, maybe there's lack of compliance, there's other issues. but then we had some smaller trials that was positive. and now we have trials to say, well, if you wear them, 12 months versus, you know, if you wear them longer than 12 months, then shorter than 12 months, maybe it benefits. Well, if it doesn't work at all, why does wearing them longer benefit?
0: Right. That's the one that troubles me. Yeah.
1: And then there's some that, again, was... Knee,
0: knee high versus thigh yeah, high. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and you know, and it's so it's kind of funny, and I, I joke with people. I chose a field where our biggest controversy is socks, <laughs> but but I think it is it, it's kind of indicative of how even simple things you can have contradictory trials and try to shift to data. And kind of my personal feeling has swung back to at least giving socks a trial. I and, see. you know, if patients hate them, they don't want to wear them, I don't press them that much. But but it is interesting. Our best, most beautifully done trial on this was negative. Right. And, you know, people have argued about compliance or other issues, or maybe just wearing loose socks is good enough. Maybe. Right. It's a placebo
0: <laughs> effect. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll just give everybody Argyle socks.
0: <laughs> but um, I mean, I think one of the challenges about the the post-thrombotic syndrome is that Um, You know, hematology is a field where generally um, the disease states that you are sort of, you know, commenting on are things with objective markers, uh, clot on scan, Mm -hmm. or objective markers, uh, you know, factor eight deficiency in an assay. But the post thrombotic syndrome is one of the things that really is more or less a subjective diagnosis, is it not?
1: It is. It is. There's a variety of scoring systems. But again, it's, it's subjective. It's leg swelling, leg pain. And, and it's also, to me, fascinating the clinical presentations. I mm-hmm. people with disabling pain, and their leg kind of looks pretty good. And other people's legs, you know, size of a Winnebago, and they're, they're just doing fine. <laughs> right, so without complaint. You're without right. complaint. No, yeah, so yeah. I think th- that's been the difficulty a lot of subjective. There there has been, you know, you can get venous reflux studies. You can measure, you know, look for ulcers and stuff. But a lot of it is, is symptomatic complaints. And, again, it's interesting how often that may not correlate mm-hmm with the physical finding and in fact i find a strong element of neuropathic pain and other issues so again you know as we invoke we never know what we're doing like oh maybe it's several diseases at once mm-hmm. but maybe some people have more of a post you know what we used to call reflex sympathetic dystrophy mm-hmm. picture neuropathy mm-hmm. some people truly have venous congestion and uh, so it, it's but like i said whatever it is we have trouble treating it and i think it ends up being frustrating
0: it reminds me of another story, another thing that came as a surprise. I wonder if you could take listeners through. Um, this was during my time working here. Uh, this is the story of uh, recombinant versus donor-derived factor for hemophilia, yes. and the use of it, and, and the presence of inhibitor. Mm-hmm. Uh uh and so what did we find in this? Uh, this was a it came out at Ash a few Yeah, years I think ago. it was the
1: snippet study. That was yeah. a study that was very interesting because it showed being exposed recombinant uh factor actually had a much higher incidence of uh having uh inhibitors formed. Fortunately a lot of these went up and went down and went away, but it was quite controversial. Um uh, because you know, again, I think that's like, well, let's use recombinant factor because right. that's the purest, so you're not gonna worry about any strange infections. Right. And it turned out, you know, maybe there's maybe getting the hodgepodge of proteins from everybody was a little bit better. And I think the theories are there's actually like oh, I think at least six, if not more, haplotypes of factor eight. And with the genetics are only for a couple, and the recombinant is awfully a mixture of four. But I think that was again a surprising study that um, people are still wrestling with because I
0: didn't know that. So the recombinant factor eight um, uh, is uh, it's th- they, they put four different haplotypes of the. Factor oh, eight. there's
1: two different haplotypes. I think it's like two and four, I see. and then the. Uh, And then the, you know, and then obviously the concentrates in theory would be everybody. And there's a very nice article out of the New England Journal a few years ago Uh that demonstrated African-Americans tend to get higher issue, higher level of inhibitors, and they tend to have the less common haplotypes so that may be playing a role in that.
0: I see. Um, And I guess the reason this was so provocative was that, you know, like everywhere else in medicine – when we moved from a protein that was derived either from pooled human blood Mm -hmm. product or pooled or animal product, as was once the case for insulin, Mm -hmm. to a recombinant, so uh, uh, usually lentiviral transfected Mm -hmm. E. coli product made, um, you know, under clean, sterile laboratory Mm -hmm. conditions. Um, You know, in many other places in medicine, it looked like it was not only saved you the sort of uh, exposure risks, um, but also was equally or perhaps even more effective. But this was an indication where everyone would have bet that inhibitors were less likely to form mm-hmm. uh, with the recombinant product, but it turned out it was the exact opposite.
1: And it's very interesting because there had been some signals in the early recombinant trials, but then people said, oh, you're just following those people more. You know, we. Oh, I see. You right. know, when we first started with. Uh, you know, the factory concentrates, that was back in the dark ages. When we didn't know any of this. And mm-hmm. this trial sort of settled that issue and actually confirmed it. So I, I think that it took people by surprise. That was a, a very, very interesting finding. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting now in the field that, you know, the next step is actually doing with factor all together. We have this wonderful antibody that brings factor 9, factor 10 together and actually seems to really shut down bleeding.
0: Oh, really? Yes. I, I think I saw this. This is a New England Journal paper as well. Right, right. Uh-huh. And is it commercially available yet?
1: It's commercially available. Interestingly, it seems to be price compatible, even a little cheaper. Uh, the fascinating thing of it is that uh, people take it weekly or every other week as a subcontinuous shot. Uh, and it dramatically for prophylaxis reduces bleeding Mm -hmm. but it totally messes up the labs we had a case of a patient we didn't know on the drug come in said he had hemophilia, passed out and all our factor levels were sky high and it only we only discovered 24 hours later he'd actually had another treatment center been getting the drug and so and we, how do,
0: and what does it do to the factor levels
1: it's it was sky his factor levels came back at 600% it falsely cuz in the test tube it brings uh-huh, uh-huh. it activates coagulation so it was a yeah. it's learning a very interesting thing it's a very
0: potent activator right uh, so it would the test would interpret that as a lot of factor as present. a lot of
1: factor had a ptt of 20 and we're like well, did somebody steal this guy's identity? What, where did his history come from? His labs make no sense. And...
0: and this molecule would not be at risk of inhibitor formation.
1: Right, in theory, uh, you know, it is an antibody, but mm-hmm. so far there's not been neutralizing antibodies in the studies.
0: I see, interesting. Hemophilia is an interesting condition, uh, particularly in terms of an industry investment point of view. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's several products. They uh, tend to be very expensive. And um, this is a field in which, um, you know, people have talked about in in cancer medicine, hematology broadly, that doctors um, often can be detailed uh, by pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. Hemophilia may be one of the few fields in which patients themselves may be detailed a little bit. Yeah, there's
1: been a fascinating literature and even press on that. Uh where patients can get detailed because uh, you know uh, a patient on prophylaxis you know getting factor eight several times a week that may be a million a year that's mm. you know that's that's good money and so there's been a variety of things like there was a company once that offered to give people a quote device so they keep track of their factor, mm-hmm. which also happened to be a iPod. And, oh wow! You know, to
0: keep track of, you know, yeah,
1: golf matches and other things. So I think I think there's been a lot of money there, and that's um, paid summer camps, paid summer camps, and college other, tuition programs. I've heard, yeah, and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So I think that's always been the struggle of you know, where does the money go? How should it influence people? One thing that's fascinating about the hemophilia products is that the H the WHO likes to have several companies make it. So you don't you know, if the mm-hmm. I'm picking a name. Recombinate factor blows up. There's mm-hmm. another factory, factory that right. makes it. So there's a lot of products out there, and I think that's the interesting part of the competition. And mm-hmm. you know, certain patients end up on certain products, think they work better, and you know, we try to respect that. But but I think you know you know the hemophilia drugs were always the first big money drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know where. Easily, especially with acquired hemophilia, you could blow through millions of dollars of factor during a hospital stay.
0: Mm-hmm. And and let's—that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about acquired hemophilia, um, uh, acquired factor eight deficiency states, which um, you know from time to time happen on the inpatient yes. service. Uh, uh, I find this to be a very interesting space um, because. Um, we end up using things that uh feel a bit born out of desperation uh novo seven yes. uh the porcine recombinant yes. factor 8, uh uh FIBA. um how would you characterize the evidence base around these and is it is it sort of desperate times call for desperate measures
1: i think originally started that, you know, Mm -hmm. and I, that's the thing that's come back up in, in the acquired hemophilia world. I mean, there's enough patients. If you got together, you probably could do a trial. In fact, there's a very small trial that was done of comparing prednisone to cytoxin, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's been an interesting evolution. When I originally started, we actually used real pig factor eight. You know, you right. go down the 4-H fair and uh, get some factor eight <laughs> from Porky there. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. And was... <laughs> that, it wasn't quite that bad, uh-huh, but uh-huh. it really seemed to work. Uh-huh, and, you know, factor, it replaced yeah. the factor eight. You could measure it. And then there's some issue with pig viruses uh-huh, and it went off. Imagine, yeah. And then the concern had always been with using FIBA. Uh, it was so prothrombotic. These were older patients. And then I think recombinant 7A, you know, well, if it works in, you know, congenital hemophilia inhibitors, why not adults? And that and that became in vogue. It's a difficult drug to use. It's very expensive. You have to give it two to three hours. Mm-hmm. You have zero way of monitoring mm-hmm. it. And I think that's where these horror stories of the big bills came mm-hmm. up. And then now, Obizur, which is mm-hmm. porcine recombinant factorate, right. came on the market. was first actually very aggressively and too aggressively priced. Mm-hmm. And people just didn't use it. The prices dropped. And again, I think, you know, you know there's some safety studies with it you're right it makes us feel better you know we get, we can measure a factor eight level it's a nice number it mm-hmm. seems like people stop bleeding but again it's all anecdotal mm-hmm. and and i think that's always interesting is a lot of it is borne out of desperation they're bleeding they don't know what to do is blood pouring out of everywhere and we just throw and i think that was the 7a story in trauma mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it used Noble to be mm-hmm. yeah the drug to give in trauma because mm-hmm. it made bleeding stop Everybody believed it mm-hmm. and then they did a study and it It didn't absolutely have any effect.
0: But it did have increased uh, thrombotic events and harms. Yes, Yes. but it made the numbers
1: look better. Okay, That's (laughs) the key. It made the INR look good, so Uh that's all that matters.
0: So uh, I guess one question I have, and you might not know the answer is, but um, uh, how how does the reimbursement work for these products? Because the hospital that's billing bills the insurer a DRG code based on uh, the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but then the hospital is on the hook for the cost of the product.
1: Yeah. Is that the case? I think it's the case. I'm not a super expert uh-huh. on this, but I think there are pathways for these extraordinary expensive drugs that things can be reversed. And I not to go into obscene detail, but I do know at least the last time we dramatically went around about cost that the hospital always got its cost covered. I so, see. Okay. so and I, I, but I think that's always the thing because you know, you know. If the hospital buys a can of Coke for $0.10, i right. will charge the patient $10. Right. And there's all this, you know, you read about these stories, oh, the patient had a $5 million hospital bill. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what did it really cost the hospital? So, you know, that's always the thing that amazes me about hospital finances. It, there seems to be a lot of monopoly money there.
0: Oh, I, absolutely. And um, I know there's some on the Internet who think that, um, that physicians aren't critical enough of hospital costs. But I think we're plenty critical <laughs> yes. of it. Yeah, and, you know, we did that study recently. I wanted to ask you, wilderness medicine. Yes. Now, there are times that I go by your office and I say, I have to tell Dr. Delore something. And then I look in your, look around and you're nowhere to be found. And <laughs> I say, where's Dr. Delore? And they say, he's in Alaska. <laughs> That's right. <And, laughs> Uh, What are you doing in Alaska, sir? So, I, I confess, no, I'm gold mining up there.
1: It's going to be my ticket out of You're Alice Not hiking the
0: Appalachian Trail. That's right. <laughs> That's
1: right. So, no, I, I I love Alaska. So, uh, I've always been a fan of the wilderness and going outdoors. You know, I'm not super extreme. I'm not going to walk across the Antarctic or wrestle a bear. But I do like hike, hiking and beauty. And so, uh, again, it's something my mentor helped with. But uh, I have this very nice. uh, Arrangement and especially the Alaska ACP has a very nice thing where for their grand rounds mm-hmm. they invite people, it's it's a nice deal. So I'll go up usually around the solstice, give a couple of talks uh, at the Alaska Native Medical Center, a beautiful and building. This is an Anchorage, and this is an Anchorage, uh, the Providence Hospital there, do mm-hmm. a journal club, and then maybe run a half marathon, go hiking. There's just a lot to do, and that, that's been very rewarding. Uh, you know, there's a very good practitioners up there, and it's you know, a different set of medical challenges where you know. Especially in Fairbanks, there's practitioners there where patients have to fly in for chemo. So, But it's, it's just the beauty. And I, I like photography, and I like going to alley. So it's, it's a wonderful place.
0: I see. I was going to ask you about that. Um, but, um, but in terms of, are, are there particular hematologic uh, questions that come up in wilderness medicine? or? So I
1: think wilderness medicine itself is, is interesting. I think the heme issues that came up. We wrote, actually, a nice paper a few years ago about an outward bound question. Like, if you're on antithrombotic therapy in the wilderness, what should you or should you not recommend? Yeah. There's very little recommendations. Should I you think- go rock climbing, skiing? Yeah. It's th- those are fascinating things. <laughs> You know, there's a variety of interesting things like rattlesnake venomation. Interesting, the thrombocytopenia appears to be more platelet like clumping. You give antivenom, pff, it gets better. So, uh-huh. so,
0: so because antivenom, for instance, eptifibatide isn't that like pygmy rattlesnake venom? Yes,
1: yes, the and peptide it, molecule. Yeah. yeah, and so, so it's interesting too the close relationship. You know, the acarin clotting time is snake venom. The Russell viper venom time. Uh, the snake has been our friend as far as hemostasis is concerned.
0: That's <laughs> yeah, true. The uh, and you know what we don't use the Russell viper venom time anymore. But when I was a student, I remember Mm -hmm. learning that.
1: Yeah. We still use it for diagnosing lupus inhibitors. Oh, you're right. The dilute Russell Viper venom time.
0: Is that right? Is that the, uh, that's the original, that's the first lupus anticoagulant test that we did? Yeah,
1: DRVVT, yes.
0: So when we get the patient, we send off lupus anticoagulant? Yeah. That's what the lab is That's doing? what they'll do, yes. And then what's their confirmatory study? So what they do
1: is that if it's prolonged, then they do, then they do they add a source of phospholipid. So if, mm-hmm. if it's an antiphospholipid antibody, yeah. it shoo, sucks up the antibody and it normalizes.
0: Mm-hmm. And- um, I guess I wanted to ask you: uh, Is there any difference between the, uh, for instance, cardiolipin and uh, beta-2 microglobulin? Does it matter which antiphospholipid oh, antibody is?
1: that's been a, you know, that's been a raging debate. Um, and so, in general, with my distillation literature, is people have true lupus inhibitors seem to do worse. Mm-hmm. That's more predictive. anti antibodies are predictive in some systems, not, not super at all predictive. Beta-2 glycoprotein may be predictive, there may be a subtype of that coming out that's more predictive. But, you know, it's been the story like this test will be more predictive than the louder, but it seems like the old clotting test is the best. Uh, uh, Dave Garcia at UW a few years ago published a very nice system- systematic review of all this. And it was surprising that while the lupus inhibitor stood out, you know, the anticarlipin, the beta-2 wasn't that predictive. I think the other thing we've discovered, that having more than one is bad. Mm-hmm. So we now have this phrase we call triple positive. We stole it from the breast cancer docs. But <laughs> uh, well, I guess they have triple negative. But you know, if you have all three, a lupus inhibitor, anticarlipin antibody, and a beta 2 protein, that's a bad risk group. And, say. and that's interesting, because they it, they seem to do worse What's interesting was there's a randomized trial of comparing warfarin to river in triple positive patients, and river was significantly inferior. Oh. And that's interesting. I, I've never seen this trial. Where is this it's trial? It's called the Trap Trials mm-hmm. in Blood. It was kind okay. of snuck away, but I think it's fascinating for two reasons. One that was, very disapp- again, very disappointing because we right. wanted to work. But also that says there must be something different about antiphospholipid antibody disease because these drugs work great elsewhere except mechanical valves and antiphospholipid antibody disease. Is it contact pathways or something else going on? I, I I think it's also interesting being negative. It's saying, you know, we still don't know what an- antiphospholipid disease is, and this is another clue that's probably pretty complex hemostatically.
0: Yeah, and I guess that to me is kind of surprising because you would think that, uh, you know, the direct thrombin inhibitors, yeah. uh, they work through the final common pathway. Right. So what can Coumadin be doing that they're not doing? And yeah. I guess there must be something else that the upstream factors are doing. Yeah, and uh, for yeah.
1: valves, people have always wondered, mechanical valves is, you know, maybe Coumadin does block the contact pathway because contact, the pathway nobody understands, uh-huh. you know, is important as mechanical surfaces.
0: But doesn't the contact pathway still factor through thrombin? And it still
1: factors through. So, you know, uh-huh. do you just overdrive it? Is there another pathway? Yeah, I and that, like I said, I think what's interesting is, yeah, these are negative studies, but they're clues that these situations are different. Mm-hmm. And as you know, with with our basic science group here, there's an interest in contact inhibition and maybe mm-hmm. combinations of things are the way to go.
0: Well, that's fascinating now i guess um i guess we could talk a little bit more about hematology but i wanted to ask you a little bit about um you know your 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 reflections on uh um, i feel like you you avoid you avoid a lot of administrative tasks is that <laughs> fair to say
1: i i I have some administrative tasks, but I've avoided it. I, I had an episode once where I actually was helping Tom Bear, one of your distinguished guests, uh-huh. uh, be division head during one of our hiatuses. Uh-huh. And the most vivid thing I remember to me what leadership encapsulate is that – you know, I get this nice speech from Tom. Oh, Brian and I have entrusted you with this vast responsibility <laughs> Your maturity to run the division day to day. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that's wow. really great. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I go to my office and the uh, and the administrative uh, – the division manager runs in and goes, oh, Tom, Tom Bear tells me you're the person to talk to. And I go, yes, I'm ready. What is it? And she goes – Anesthesia is complaining that the men are missing the toilet in the bathroom in their hallway. And you need to do something about it. So your 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 first
0: task yes. is is literally mopping up the mess.
1: Yeah, it was literally threatening the faculty in that hallway that things weren't clean. They're all going to get mandatory logic exams. So that, that that to me encapsulates leadership. I, that,
0: that's a, that is a leader. And and so what was your solution was a first you used the threat. Yes, and then you affixed that um uh, that little fly sticker. The little fly thing. Yes,
1: yes. A little <laughs> little red.
0: I see. That was, um, uh... <laughs> so that so that that was where the buck stopped. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, Try. Have you had other forays into leadership? <laughs> <laughs> That's been about it. I, I do what I call
1: minor leadership, mm-hmm. like being medical directors of things. But I, I think the virtues of a good leader you know, in academics. And I think that's why the model has changed is I think you got to go to a lot of meetings, which I don't like. You Uh have to have a business sense, which I don't have, Uh you know? And so I think there's a lot of skill sets. and, you know, and to be honest, I've always found what I'm doing fun enough. Uh I think one key to be happy is, you know, you know, changing up work every now and then. So I got interested in wilderness medicine because it's interesting, something a little different, actually got a, uh, to be a fellow of the Academy of Wilderness and that was oh, a lot wow. of fun to do. So I think part of the key why things have been fun is you always change things up a little bit. There's new opportunities. But yeah, I, I think being the great leader of people was never on my bucket list.
0: I see. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I, th- I, I, uh, I feel very similarly to you because I think it's, uh, it's got to be very tough. I mean, not just that you have to mop up this mess. Or, you know, <laughs> literally. Literally. Uh, but also that, you know, you um, know, well, I will mention this that uh, if if listeners were able to come by your office, um they would find many, many things. Uh, I want to describe it a little bit. So, from the ceiling, they would find um, many, many model aircrafts uh, that are tethered to the uh, the tile. Um, on the walls, they'll find uh, posters of Bob Dylan. Yes. who for for whom you're a big fan. Yes, forty concerts. Uh, forty concerts, mm-hmm. and uh, even the Nobel laureate conference. That's concert, right. Right, right, I went in, there. Uh, yes. Stockholm, yeah. Um, and um, uh, and, uh, and so that you're right so there's another Nobel laureate you know uh, and, um, and uh, many many books mm-hmm. uh, some of those old dusty hematology yes. books that are written by I think David is going to come on uh, Steensbaugh and talk yes. about it but written by by hand yes, uh, yes. In, a, in a single uh, uh, pass um, and uh, also a lot of history books you're an avid reader of history I love history I, lo- I love reading nonfiction. Uh, it's not all I read but I'm, I'm a big fan of reading history there's so many war books in there. If I didn't know better, I think you're planning something. <laughs> That's right. Shh. <laughs> um, it, it, is that part of um, you know? Is that part of the same phenotype? You know, you're you like to read a lot of yeah. the history of hematology. Yeah. You like to read a lot of nonfiction generally. Um, is that part of what makes you tick?
1: I think so. I. You know, it was funny. I've always had that habit of I read an hour of night right before I go to bed, no oh, matter do. what. I always uh. read. There's no phone. There's no TV. In fact, for years, I didn't own a TV before mm-hmm. I got married. And and then I discovered later that Osler said that was the key to be successful, was to always read a bit at night. Oh, so, really? So I think it's good. I think it operates a different part of your brain, mm-hmm. allows you to meditate on different things like what makes a great general. And, you know, his, history is interesting because – you know, people read fiction. I'm like, yeah, there's stuff that happens in history that would never happen in fiction. Uh, it would be
0: too unbelievable. It would
1: be too unbelievable. Like I always cite – my daughter and I were talking about this. But I always cite that right before World War II started when J- Japan invaded China, the communists got very mad. They weren't thinking Chiang kai shek was doing enough. And so they kidnapped. Them and then they released him if they agreed to work together. And you, you know, if you wrote that a, as a novel, like, oh, it's too unbelievable, they'd yeah. kill him, nobody would believe it. And uh-huh. so, so I think that it's the fascinating twist and turns of history that uh, that's, that just fascinates me. And uh, also mountaineering. <laughs> yes, those are great re- adventure books. I think there's just the sheer adventure of things. Yeah. You know, imagine... You know, it's funny because I'm actually terrified of heights. Oh, really? Yes, I just kind of imagine these people like, you know, bivouac, you know, by, you know, nailing their tent to the side Mm -hmm. of a sheer cliff and stuff. And I think it's just... And especially the older mountaineering stuff, like Charlie Halston, this classic. Yes. You know, you know, a couple of us in hobnail boots went. Uh, you know, or uh, Annapurna where they didn't literally uh-huh. have maps, or kind of making things up as they go uh-huh. along. Th- those are just they're they're well written, but they're just fun stories.
0: And the and the classic uh, by Tom Hornbane Yes, uh, yes. Who is a professor of anesthesia at University of Seattle, Washington.
1: Yes, a professor of anesthesia. Very gracious man. Actually, uh, when we were doing some wellness medicine projects, talked to me on the phone. It was a delight to talk to.
0: And uh, and listeners may not. No, but uh, the first uh, part of the first two two men who traversed Mount yes. Everest, mm-hmm. uh, pioneering the West Ridge route, yes. and crossing over, mm-hmm. uh, s- sleeping above 8,000 meters okay. a night with no blankets yep. or anything, uh, and probably um, coming oh so close to death, yes, uh, and then uh, and then returned to a long career, and I think he was the chairman of anesthesia. Yeah, right? he was yeah. a
1: very accomplished man.
0: All right. Then the the other topic I wanted to ask you about, Dr. DeLore. Um, This state uh, uh, had a governor for many years, John Kitzhaber, who was a faculty member here at OHSU. And um, OHSU and Oregon have a sort of proud and long tradition of uh, health care efforts. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the history of that. I
1: think that's been a fascinating history. So when I first got here, there wasn't the Oregon plan. Mm -hmm. And and what happened is, when the state didn't have money, you couldn't transplant patients. And so, what you would do is, they would move to Seattle for 30 days and get transplanted in Seattle. Oh, I see. And there were all sorts of horror stories about that. Uh, we actually, one of my colleagues had a patient. Who rent an apartment and then would just keep renting it to other people through the you know, like an informal network. And I always wondered if there's gonna be some report of a leukemia cluster from this <laughs> apartment. But then there was a story of a patient whose whose kidney to transplant and they Literally parked in the parking lot of Children's Hospital in Seattle for 30 days. I think part of it was. Oh, to meet
0: residency. To requirements. meet residency, oh, but it was God. a
1: lot of publicity and I think generated the Oregon Health Plan. And I think it was a fascinating process that they went through to actually get medical therapies and ask, does these medical therapies help? Interestingly, one of the highest things on there was hemophilia because uh-huh. they'd stop bleeding, they're young kids, they live a long time, you know, treating pneumonia did it, so I think that process was fascinating, and they literally made a list of things, which fortunately most things, and probably more rational than many insurance companies, right? you know, get approved, you can get approved. So so I think that was a very fascinating effort. Um, the other thing I think that happened that Dr. Kitzhaber was key in was the trauma system. Mm. And I know he had m- my good friend Marty Shriver ah. on here, but that was a big change. You know, you know, in the old days, if you're out on your bicycle and got hit by a car, mm-hmm you know, some guy owning an ambulance and a junkyard would maybe pick you up, dump you off the hospital. You know, people mm-hmm. don't realize what it was in the early days. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the pioneers here, like Don Trunkey, the trauma system, a lot of good people in Oregon came together to form a very effective trauma system. Mm-hmm. and. You know, the story Marty likes to talk about, but I remember there's a gentleman, you know, injured in Southern Oregon, gets seen at a tertiary care place there, transferred here. It's very smooth. Everybody's talking. And, you know, and that literally saved his life. So I think there's been a lot of innovation in healthcare, care. And I think, I said, I yeah, the Oregon plan was a key innovation. I think, that, you know, a very effective model trauma system. Mm-hmm. And I think the Northwest is known for that. Seattle, again, has a very good EMS system. And I think just maybe the West Coast thinking differently did things.
0: Yeah, and I think um, I, I think we we talked to cat livingston in uh, one of the early episodes yes. and she talked a little bit about the Oregon health plan the prioritized list yes. um and just to sort of remind listeners it's uh, uh, you know Oregon in an effort to expand medicaid to as many people as possible and sort of raise the cut line on Medicaid um, is prudent and thoughtful mm-hmm. in terms of the specific line item healthcare things that Oregon covers, and has assembled um, I think some team of evidence based experts to kind of go through things and say, look, if we want to use our limited healthcare dollars, because unfortunately they're they're always mm-hmm. limited, um, for maximum benefit. Um, what are the services we should prioritize? And that has been something that John Kitzhaber, as governor, um, really, and even when he was uh, worked in the state legislature, he pushed through um, and uh, was able to secure a Medicaid waiver for that um, many years ago, and has been really one of the the ways in which Oregon has stood head and shoulders above the rest.
1: Yeah, I would agree. So I think that that's been leadership there. Uh, certainly, I think the other work, you know, is palliative care, hospice, Susan Toll in the post forms uh, was another, I think, big thing of leadership. You know, many more people die here in hospice. That's been earlier. And, you know, people tend to forget the heart valve was invented here. Oh, really? Yeah, right, right. I'm pointing right over there. Right over there. Right over there, the heart valve was. I don't know if it was literally invented there, but that was the old surgery when it sort was of put there. And that was, you know, it was a pretty bold thing. And what was... Uh, one of my colleagues, Rich Mullins, gives a wonderful talk on it. But it was very interesting because mm-hmm. it was literally AlStar, star uh, Edwards, uh, you know, an inventor. But, you know, out literally in the frontier, uh, you know, everybody uh, had done work on the East Coast, couldn't figure it out. And somehow they had cracked it, mainly because they had a hydraulic engineer and a very smart cardiothoracic surgeon figure uh, it out. But, but the cutest part of the story is that the NIH flew out and said – just just give us a piece of paper and we'll give you a grant because we want to be part of this. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I you know. When's the last time the NIH came out I and know. offered, you, the, offered, you, offered you, you funding? No, you know?
0: they usually, they're quick to say no. Yes. Dr. Larry, I wonder if you might end with um, some thoughts on, um, you know, what are the kinds of, you know, when you advise students and you, you tell them, like, you know, what, what they should get out of their medical school and you advise residents what they should get out of their residency, um, you know, what's the advice you would give him? What, do they, what should they try to do in those limited? In that limited that's time? That's good. I think I've always found
1: that memorized in Krebs cycle. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew I could get you on that one. Yeah. No, I, that's good. Uh, having uh-huh. a medical student now in the family, I, I think the key is several things. There's things you just got to learn, and that's always hard to say, you know, when you're a medical student. You know, you probably should learn about EKGs and drugs, and that's kind of boring, Mm -hmm. and that's good. Um, The one thing I always did, I think to me was always key, and it sounds very plebeian advice, but just read on your patients. To me... You know, if I saw somebody with Castleman's, that never made sense until you actually see a patient with Castleman's. Mm -hmm. Then you read about the disease and like, oh, he had that, they didn't have that, Mm -hmm. they had that, it really stuck. It's
0: reinforcing. It's
1: reinforcing. I think that's actually a very powerful teaching technique and learning techniques to read on your patients. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, there's days that are bad, things bad, but in the end, you gotta do what's fun for you. And so something my mentor always said, in the end, you'll do what you like. You know, there's people feel like, Oh, I need to go in academic medicine, and they, you know, they just like seeing patients, and they end up being much happier in practice. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think we've had examples here of people who were not happy in leadership, were not happy doing this, but they went to industry and they thrived. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to know. And I think one of the nice things about medicine is. You can still do so many different paths with an MD and being academics. And I think now we're seeing people much more easily shift back and forth. People going to industry, coming back, Mm -hmm. people going to community, coming back. Mm -hmm. And and I think you also have to have variety. You know, I uh, you know, just I have spent my whole career going in every day doing heme clinic from, you know, eight to four. Maybe I would like that. But I think Mm -hmm. the variety of having a job where I could teach, do research, write papers, work with wonderful residents and uh-huh. students has, has been very gratifying.
0: I see. And and when if somebody were to say, you know, how do how if they say I like seeing patients, how do I know if academics is right for me?
1: Yeah. So um uh so, so the joking response would be to go out and hit your head in a two-by-four for a bit, and then if you enjoy that. Or, or, or ask if you like a pay cut. Huh? Yeah, yeah that would be it. Yeah. So I think the things about academics you have to ask yourself is, what do people do in academics? And I think it's several things. This would be, that would be an interesting question to see what other people think. Yeah. I think a lot of people are in academics because they want to be an expert in something. Okay. Now, again, there's very good, you know, my colleagues in the community are experts in things, but, you know, you know, I want to be the expert on G6PD deficiency. Right, so some, be,
0: some tiny little niche they want to niche, be so You want
1: to be the clinical expert. I mm-hmm. want to be the greatest GI doctor. So things like that. So some sort of expertise. You know, again, there's very good teachers, especially in Portland's blessed with, you know, community hospitals with very good teaching. But uh-huh. I think teaching is a big role, you know, uh-huh. to teach residents. You know, if you enjoy teaching residents, teaching students.
0: And by teaching, you mean not only like love of like like giving lectures, but yeah. also those impromptu teachers. Impromptu
1: teach- lectures, you know, teaching people as they see you mm-hmm. when you're on the wards. I, I think that's also key. And then I think, you know, scholarship. And again, I, one nice thing, especially here, as mm-hmm. I've, I've tweeted before, is I think there's been a very open view of scholarship. The classic, you know, getting the R1, doing the classic bench research is good. But, you know, certainly we've had people teaching scholarship. You know, I've written a lot of papers, fun papers with residents and fellows on a variety of things. Mm-hmm. But I think disseminating scholarships, giving formal presentations is also good. So I think in academics, again, there's very good people in community, private practice who've Absolutely. done that. But I yeah. think... You know, academics makes that a little bit easier. I see. And again, you're not burdened also that worrying what you're going to do with all your pay and stuff. You know, that's, <laughs> it's, it's very conveniently... It, it frees you of that worry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's when I first starting. I had to put up of comments, but I had a friend who always said, yeah, it's interesting. Failure in academic medicine means you go out and triple your salary. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's like, we don't have to worry about investing in a local winery. That's uh, right. You know, this is not something that, I, that we have to worry about. Uh, <laughs> And my last question for you. You've been on Twitter for quite a while. Yes. Um, do you like it? What do, and, and if so, what do you like about it? I,
1: I, I enjoy Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife would say I enjoy it too much. But <laughs> uh-huh. um, I think I enjoy several things. I think the one thing I enjoy is certainly it's fascinating things I hear about first on Twitter I don't hear about elsewhere. Right. Articles in Blood, uh, Papers Other People Wrote. Uh, what's nice is when other people go to conferences, they hear good ideas. I, I think the exposure has been there good. And I think also what thought leaders, other thought leaders. Uh-huh. So I'm glad you follow me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's key. I, 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 I thought I blocked you. Anyway. Uh, you should have. Yeah. Uh, but you know what other people in my field are uh-huh. thinking? Uh-huh. Uh, that's That's been very fun uh, to do. So I like that. And I, I follow a variety of things. I, I you know, I had a Brief flirt. I almost became an economist once. And so ah. I follow some economic blogs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so cynical. That's always fun. Of course.
0: And and, and only by following economists on Twitter um, do you learn um, that causality can only be shown through instrumental variable analysis. That's <laughs> right. That's
1: right. That's the key. That, <laughs> that's the key. Yeah. That, that's, that's changed my whole life. So, <laughs> so I think I've enjoyed that. And, you know, it's interesting when I was at uh, American Society of Hematology Meeting is a meetup and I actually met a lot of people only do on Twitter, which was fun. Ah. They were all surprised they were sh- I'm shorter in real life than I am on I Twitter. But, uh, but it was fun. And, you know, that was the discussion of and I think that's what they felt like, too, is just exchanging information, getting ideas, hearing mm-hmm. about what's going on at meetings. And I think, you know, especially the medical Twitter I follow tends not to be that politicized. It's interesting how people feel like, For that, they they pull back and, you know, have have views. But I think using it to disseminate information is good. And again, like I said, I like that people go to other meetings I can't go to, tweet things. and It's a good – and, you know, just papers I never would have seen come up. Uh, There was a – Talk about factor eight inhibitors, There's a paper about using fibroprophylaxis. We discussed it, but actually mm. there had been a paper somebody had published, and it was a good paper. So I think that's the fascinating thing about exchanging uh, information. I see. And a good form to complain about IVC filters. Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, um, I've taken up too much of your time. But uh, I want to thank you so much, Bloodman, oh, for coming on this the, has the been plenary a session yes. stage. And, uh, you know, we have to have you back to discuss um, a a late-breaking hematology paper (laughs) um, and uh, and to kind of pick through that. Um, But I think, uh, you know, listeners are going to really enjoy, um, you know, some of your reflections on... on Medical practice. Back and, in my day. Yeah, and uh, and, and and the real cha- the challenges of leadership. That's right. Uh, the, the key challenges. The key challenges of leadership. Right. And I'm I'm glad that uh, you handled that situation.
1: That's right. Well, that was key. That. That's what all my training has led up to.
0: <laughs> and now I know where to direct my uh, future grievances towards <laughs> That's you. That's uh, right. Now That's I know right. someone who can solve these problems. That's right. Well, thanks, Doctor Delore. Great. For Thank you on. very
1: much. It's an honor.
0: You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.